Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of West Side Stories, your Raptors 905 podcast brought to you by Raptors Republic. I'm Kelsey, your host, joined by my co-host, Dwayne Notice. Dwayne, how's it going? I'm doing well. Hope you're good as well. Hope everybody else out there is good. I'm great. I can't speak for anyone else. Um, I can speak for the 905, though, who are most definitely not great right now. They just dropped the the series to the main Celtics, who I think are 9-1 and one after that series. And it was a very strange series, not just on the court, but off the court as well. We saw the game on Saturday, Game 2, and it... Um, it was a seven hour and something long game due to um, factors outside of basketball that just could not be controlled. You know, fans went there for a basketball game. They got a science lesson when the court was sweating through or the ice was sweating through the court and just made it completely unplayable. Has anything like that ever happened to you while you were playing? Yeah, uh, it has. Not to that extreme, though. Uh, I recall my first year with the 905, we were playing in Westchester, New York, and I'm pretty sure the roof, there was two things actually going on. There was something like there was a leak in the roof, but there was also something where like the court was like uneven or like dented or something like that. I, I, I specifically remember them saying there was a spot on the court that was uneven to the point where it was so unsafe to play. A player could get hurt by just stepping on that part of the hardwood. And those two factors are what made them essentially call the game. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that I was completely upset because we were playing in New York. So, you know, it was basically a, a canceled game in New York and we got to, you know, enjoy enjoy the city um, and of New York and, and have a great time and rejuvenate and, and, and get ready for our next game. But they ended up making us play that game uh, sometime later in the schedule. So we ended up making up for the, for, for the cancellation of the game. But yeah, it was very unfortunate to see what happened uh, last game with 905 and the fact that they had to to have that. That's a crazy seven hours game time. That's intense. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it, you know, they lost pretty badly. They lost, um, the final score wasn't as bad, 134 to 106, but you know, they did allow Maine to drop 51 points in the second quarter. What's it like to play through something like that, being either on the giving or the receiving end of that? Well, being on the receiving end is pretty horrible. And, you know, the giving end is, is pretty wonderful because as a basketball player, when you're on fire and you're in that zone, it just feels like the game is moving in slow motion. And on top of that, it's like after your first couple of shots and then the shots become more difficult in terms of the defense gets more intense. But for some reason, the hoop just continues to grow and get bigger and expand to the point where it's like you hear those things of throwing a rock into the ocean. And when you're in that zone, it's kind of hard to get out of it, especially if you're a player who could tap into it, lock into it. And it's always amazing when you have players who feed off that energy. So it's always amazing when you have a teammate who catches fire and then the other teammate catches fire as well. And it's a great synergy going along because everybody's making shots. Now, on the other side of things, it's horrible because you you get defeated mentally and also physically, especially if you're playing amazing defense on a team or a player and that person continues to make tough shots after tough shots and consecutive shots from, you know, multiple reads and drives and kicks and making all these these buckets. After a while, it gets to you. And as a defender, you're like, all right, what <laughs> What else can I do at this point? 
So it's definitely mentally defeating and definitely physically defeating if you're playing a, a player who's who's all about getting buckets and then locks into that that final form, that super sane form of just being on fire for the duration of the quarter or the game. And that's what it was like. I mean, every single shot was going in. And it's not like they were super complex shots, but it's also not like they were easy shots. It was from everywhere on the floor, everything was going in. There was nothing that you could do to stop any of them. That's the thing about basketball that we tend to forget sometimes, though. You know, it's a game. So you're going to have those days where, you know, the best shooter in the world is going to be off. And, it's you know, Steph Curry could have a game where he's not shooting the three ball well. And, you know, his necessary doesn't mean his preparation, his practice and all that, his rhythm before the game was any different. It just sometimes the way the ball, the ball, the ball just goes on that particular day. And then likewise, you have games where you, you just can't miss. And, you know, as a player, it's always funny because, you know, we're, we're big on routine and, you know, a lot of players are superstitious and they try to, you know, have a consistent routine so they can continue to have the same result of being successful. But there's nothing worse than, you know, one night you're hitting all these incredible shots and then the next game you're taking legit the same type of shots and they're not going in. It just sometimes it messes with you as a basketball player. But, you know, which all you can do is just kind of um, hold yourself accountable and just continue to believe in your work ethic and, and, and always trust what you've done prior because that will help you, you know, stay, stay consistent and also stay on top. And where does the line kind of get drawn for sportsmanship in a situation like that? Like when you're dropping 51 in a quarter, do you keep going because it's the second quarter or do you kind of ease up a little bit? Like what, oh, you gotta run what it are up. the, the you gotta, rules? You got to run it up. If, <laughs> I'm, if I'm a player, I'm a competitor. Um, especially the second quarter is so early in the game. There's no mercy rules in professional basketball. You, you have to, if you, if you have your foot on the pedal, and on the gas, you want to continue to keep it there. You don't want to release that pressure because we've talked about this in the first or second podcast where it's like, you know, you give a team some life and it's professional basketball, especially the way that basketball has headed in the direction of high clip offense where it's, you know, a lot of transition. Guys are shooting three-point shots on a five-on-two. <laughs> so the way the three balls being shot nowadays in the analytics, it's, 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 it's not really a huge lead anymore to be up by 20 and feel safe and secure. So, yeah, if I'm if I'm able to go on an insane run or score a crazy amount of points in one quarter, um, for example, what Maine did, which is 51 points in the second quarter, then I'm going to continue to 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 continue to keep my foot in the pressure. I don't want to give you any life. I want you to feel lifeless to the point where you don't even want to come out onto the court after halftime. But if it was the fourth quarter, would that change? Maybe a little bit, but nah, I don't know. I feel like a lot of teams, especially – you know, Raptors 9-5 historically in the G League have been a great team. So I feel like a lot of teams also want to send a message. And and so it's like, all right, we have you down by this much, but we're going to continue to put the pressure on because we want you guys to know how it feels to be on this side of, of, of the game. And it's it's kind of interesting because it's also a mental game and a mental aspect as well, because now as 9-5, it's like when you play main again, you remember those moments. You remember, all right, they try to embarrass us or they, they ran it up on us so much that it's it's kind of like it's hard to sleep at night you those are the kind of games where you circle the schedule of like all right when we play them when are we going oh we play them in two months two weeks all right bet so um the end of the game now nah, i will continue to run it up but at the same time it's like that's when you start putting your your bench players in because you don't want your starters to be hurt etc cetera, etc cetera. so i guess uh you kind of don't end up running it up at the end of the day when it's the fourth quarter but if i'm a coach listen I'm keeping my guys on there and I'm sending the message. 
And speaking of coaches, so another situation unique to this main series was that the 905 were without their head coach, Patrick Matumbo, who attended the Giants of Africa event uh, hosted by Masai Ujiri, where there was a confirmed positive COVID case. And he did not test positive, but he did choose to isolate out of an abundance of caution. What's that like when you all of a sudden you're not just without players, but you're without your coach? Oh, man. First and foremost, I just want to say it's been a crazy amount of adversity uh, Nanopov has to, you know, play through already in just the beginning of the season. So I commend them for, you know, continuing to put their best foot forward. But, yeah, I've been in a situation similar to that, not in the, the professional level, um, but I've definitely been at that, that, that stage in my career when I was at the University of South Carolina where Frank Martin was, um, you know, unable to coach for one game and we had our head assistant coaching. And, and you know, the thing about I think a lot of people don't understand is how much work that goes into being not only a head coach, but an assistant coach. They really are the foundation. They really are watching film up all night. They're studying, they're scouting, they're doing reports. They're, they're, they're taking film. They're watching film. They're also in practice. They're, they're doing reps. So as an assistant coach, you're super prepared for moments like these. Plus every head coach who's the head of a snake of their team is trying to groom their associates to be a head coach one day. A lot of, you know, assistant coaches, especially in the NBA or former head coaches, and they're also trying to get back into that head coaching spot. So as a head coach, you you want to give, I remember Jama used to do these cool things or even, you know, Coach Frank Martin at South Carolina where it's like he would let each assistant run a different practice throughout the week so that they get the experience of what it's like to be the head guy of calling the plays and watching the flow of how the, the practice is going so that when it comes to game time, if there's a situation where a coach gets kicked out, two technicals ejected, or if there's a situation where a coach is sick or or a situation like this with with, 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 Ms., with uh, Coach Matumbo, then you have a coach who's able to step up and fill the shoes and communicate effectively to the players where it's not that much of a disparity of when the head coach is gone. So that happens quite a bit um, sometimes. And, you know, it's on the players, the leadership of the players, and to come together and get that win for the coach who's absent. As we kind of saw it with the parent club too. I mean, when they parted ways with Dwayne Casey and then had one of his assistants take over and Nick Nurse. But I guess it must be strange as a player to have this one voice yelling at you all game that you listen to above all else and then have it be someone completely different the next time. Oh, definitely. Like I said, uh, just to go back onto the experience I was talking about South Carolina, it's actually our last game of our non- of our regular conference in the SEC. We were playing against, uh, I think it was Mississippi State on the road. So it was a road game. It was our assistant coach's first, you know, head coaching job um, at the time. And yeah, it was totally two completely different styles of coaching. And it was funny because nothing against our original head coach, or, um, you know, Frank Martin, who's a legend. Um, but our assistant coach at the time was a little more laxed. It was just a different style of coaching. So I feel like a lot of players, they were able to play more free. It was like a different style of basketball that particular game. So like you said, as a player, it's like you're so used to being taught one way or yelled at one way or a player making certain kind of rotations. I mean, a coach making a certain type of rotations or a coach calling a certain type of plays. And now it's like you have somebody else who has a different tone in their voice or, you know, who calls timeouts when there's a run or when there's not a run. There's just different strategies. So it, it, it could get tough if you're not consistent. But, you know, as a basketball player, that's what you do. You adjust. You're able to be coachable and you're a lot, and you're able to listen to not only the head coach, but also the assistant coaches as well. So another thing that might be weird, and you could probably speak to the 
exact opposite of this. So when the game resumed um, at eight o'clock after being canceled at two, it was freezing in the arena. There were no fans. The AC was cranked up to keep the ice from melting. And a lot of the guys on the 905, when you look at the roster, they're from the South. So they're from where it's warm. You know, they're from Alabama. They're from Atlanta. What is that like? And just not just playing in a freezing gym, but for you, someone from Canada to go to South Carolina and play where it's, you know, sweltering heat all the time. Does that factor into the way that you play and your conditioning and stuff? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, like you said, when I went to South Carolina, being a Toronto kid, it was definitely a shock. The environment, the atmosphere was extremely different. Um, I started sweating before I even got warm. So uh, so you, you adjust. You got to stay hydrated because, like you said, there's so much heat down there. Um, and the physicality in which they play and, and the type of level of basketball they play, I was I had to make sure I was hydrated. I was cramping a lot. A lot of people don't know, but my first year at South Carolina, I had to literally get inserted with IV fluids uh, before every game because I was cramping the first five games. And Frank was like, listen, we need this guy to perform and play at the end of the games. Uh, we need to find something we could do. And it became a thing where I was regularly getting IVs before every game because I wasn't used to the heat, to the temperature, et cetera, et cetera. And I had to do that for the duration of the season to the point where I forgot what the word is, but they couldn't, they, it was, I was getting, <laughs> I was getting the IVs in my feet, in my, in my hands because they ran out of, uh, you know, veins that was rejecting my veins and my arm were rejecting it because I was doing it at least twice a week because of the games. And so it was definitely a big adjustment for me in terms of my body and how I was able to play basketball down there. And so I could imagine it being something different for, you know, these guys who you said were born, raised in the South, never seen snow before, some of them. And they come here and it's like playing in a super cold gym is not what they're used to. And as a basketball player, when the gym is extremely cold, it just makes you feel like you're not warm, even though you are warm. So what I would do in those situations, I'd be on the side. I would use the bike when I'm not in. If I know I'm about to sub in, I would go stretch real quick, get, you know, get the trainer. Shout out Graham, shout out Ray to come to come stretch me, do some activations real quick before I get back onto the court because you want to be able to stay warm. If you're not warm, then that's how you, you know, get injuries. That's how, you know, you're not as loose and you're slower. So, yeah, it's definitely a big adjustment um, between the players. And, and it's interesting to see that they're still able to have the game, though. Um, you know, my situation we talked about, they canceled it. Here, nah, they, they continued the game. So as a player, we talked about this before the mental aspect of being locked in is, is extremely difficult. Like if you're scheduled to play at 2 PM and you end up not playing till 8 PM, that's a six hour difference. What do you do in between that time? So, you know, as players, I could, I could see how tough that was to get through that game. Um, it's quite, it's quite unfortunate, but it, it is what it is. At the end of the day, like you said, it was unforeseeable events that, that caused this to happen and hopefully it doesn't happen again. And we're able to have a smooth outing next time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know that the 905 guys eventually were allowed to leave. They said, you know what, we'll call you as soon as we know something. So they were allowed to leave because they live right around the corner. But as far as the guys from Maine, I'm not sure what happened to them. I don't know if they had to stay in the arena, if they got to go back to their hotel. But even then, just the stop and go of it all, you know, you go in that too. Undressed. If you're getting taped, you got to cut the tape. You got to come back and get taped again. Plus, like we spoke about before, like when you're preparing to play basketball, you're preparing to go to war. So it's like you're mentally – we talked about with the early games and how you have to change your mindset um, because you're playing at 11 a.m. Now you're playing at 2 p.m., so you're changing your mindset again. And it's like they tell you, oh, no, no, we got to play again at 8 the same day. Now you got to retrain your mind to get 
focus for an eight o'clock game that originally was supposed to be at noon, it does a lot to your mental, your psyche, your body. Yeah, I mean, and people think, okay, the game's at two, but they didn't get there at two. You got there quite a few hours early. So by the end of it all, that's a 15-hour day. Exactly. That's a, that's a long, <laughs> long day. And and like I said at the beginning of this podcast, adversity is something that I've, I've seen a lot in the character of our guys, and whether it's the staff or 905 or the players, and it's something I want to continue to see um, because it's very inspiring. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, and then you think of the guys at the end of the bench that had the same 15 hour day and you look at, you know, Andrew Rousey or Alex Antetokounmpo who had one minute and four minutes. Like that's, that's got a great on your soul. You're sitting there freezing in the absolute cold for 15 hours and nothing comes of it. Yeah. It's definitely some that you feel, but you know, you just got to continue to stay the course because at the end of the day, there's going to be an opportunity for, you know, those guys who are at the end of the bench to show why they're on the team. Um, yeah. That's a misconception that a lot of fans or people in general sometimes don't know when they watch the NBA and the NBA G League is most of these players are are not playing because it's situational, um, things that are, you know, uncontrollable to them. But if you put them in a different environment, then they're going to flourish because at the end of the day, they're professional basketball players. They're on the team for a reason. So, you know, that's a misconception that I feel like a lot of people, um, you know, kind of look at They look at the box score. They see a player doesn't play a lot, but this player will give you 30 on any night. You know, it's, it's similar to when we talk about the NBA and, and guys who don't even get in at the end of the bench are some of the some of the greatest basketball players, you know, one on one or some of the best basketball players you play in pickup. So um, it's all about the situation and environment in which players are in. And for guys like Rousey and you know Juwan Evans and. Um, other players um, who are in a similar position, it's like we continue to preach. You want to just continue to get better. And, and you know, throughout that day, 15-hour day, you want to make sure you get some shots up. You want to work on your body, maybe lift a little bit. Um, let me watch some film. You know, use that extra time in the day, in the work day, to, to get better. And that's what, um, you know, I always was taught as a basketball player is be an everyday dude, but also is use every opportunity to get better. So, you know, it was an unfortunate situation. They had to wait around so much, a long time. But it's like, take advantage of it if you can. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, just speaking to that, like the guys in different situations, Andrew Rossi is the second leading scorer of all time in Virginia high school history. The only person that has more points than him is Allen Iverson. Holy, I did not know that. But that's, I feel like when we first went to the game or before we went to the first game, I told you, I was like, I played Rousey. In university, and if he's not anything at all, he is a bucket, and that is somebody who I admire because when you're at that stature and that height, but you're able to still get buckets with the best of them, facing multiple defenses, and still able to score at a high clip, um, all three levels, whether it's getting to the basket, mid range, and three point, and then his ability he's a smart player as well, so he makes the right plays and the right passes when need be. You know, he has a bright future for his career and, you know, hopefully he's able to contribute with us and show show everybody why he's such a great player. Yeah, for sure. But I just I guess my question is, at one po- what point in your career do you say, you know, yes, I have one foot in the door with the G League. But when is the other foot going to drop? Like, is there a point where you just say, you know what, this is this is enough for me? I guess it probably depends on the player. But did you ever have a situation like that? I think it depends on the player, like you said, but also, you know, in my situation too, if we're going to be honest, it, it was it was also an environment thing. So I had a lot of people in my circle 
who were influencing me to to stay in the G because I had such an amazing or I had such a good first uh, first season with the 905. So sometimes it could be an influence from, you know, your closest friends, your, your family, your agent. Um, and it, it, sometimes it's, it's up to the player themselves to kind of realize, like, how long do I want to be in this situation where I'm kind of missing out on maximizing my opportunity and making the most amount of money I can. Um, we all know athletic careers aren't the longest, so you don't want to continue to, 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 I don't want to say waste time because it's not wasted time. You're still, you know, gaining valuable lessons in the G league. And um, when you do play, it's obviously tremendous opportunity, but yeah, there's definitely that, that tug and pull um, mentally of, of when I should go overseas or when I should just continue to wait it out. But it's hard because you see a lot of guys like, uh, you know, Alex Caruso or Fred Van Fleet, who are literally epitome of what betting on yourself looks like. So, you know, as a player who's in the G and you you kind of look at those situations, you're like, wow, you know, I work hard. I, I, I'm, I'm good. I can possibly believe what, you know, Fred Van Fleet became or what Alex Caruso became from coming from the G League. So when that's in the back of your head, especially these players who play against these players in college, who, who played against these players in high school, and you're like, I'm on that level, if not better, then it kind of has that you feeding your ego to the point where it's like, no, I'm going to continue to wait it out until my opportunity comes. And then sometimes, unfortunately, the opportunity doesn't come. Yeah, and I guess it's, it's entirely situational too because I think when we look at someone like Juwan Evans, who was drafted by the Clippers, or we look at Andrew Rousey, you know, the only player outside of Allen Iverson to have this many points, those are good guys that just got stuck in a bad situation. And it's not because they're on a bad team. They're on a fantastic team, but they're on a team that is – you know, stacked with guards. We got Bree and Tyree. We've got Ashton Haggins. We've got Juwan. We've got Andrew Rousey. We've got, and then we've got all the two ways coming down or the assignees coming down. So realistically, when you're someone that's, you know, 5'10 or six flat, like, like Juwan or like Andrew, you're not going to have the same variety or the same options that guys who are, you know, six, four and up can, can play like a, a small three or a small four, you are kind of stuck in one position, right? That's a fact. It's, it's difficult when, when you're a smaller guard because it's hard to be versatile in the sense that it's not that they're not capable of it. I'm sure, you know what I'm saying, especially Jawan, someone who I know personally, or Rousey, I know that their heart is is, is is bigger than them. So I know if if they had the opportunity or they had the task of having to play a different position, or guard somebody outside their position, I know they would be up for the challenge. But as a basketball coach and, and as someone that's trying to strategize the game correctly so that you can put your team in the best position to win, you know, sometimes you got to be a realist. And it's, it's hard to put those guys at the three when you have threes nowadays who are six, eight. Um, you know, you're just going to get posted up. And again, not to say that they can't hold their own, but going small ball against a team who has, you know, a large amount of or, or has wings who are, you know, um, lengthy and has wings that are of of height is is very difficult to kind of win against that matchup. So they just got to continue to sit the course. I remember being in a situation similar to them where, you know, luckily for me because I'm more of a stockier player, I was able to slide to the four, and I wasn't extremely happy about it uh, playing a four man at six three. But at least I was able to be on the on the court and be able to play with my guys and help them win. Um, but yeah, to your point, you know, being a smaller guard is difficult to get time when you're all vying for that one position, whether it's the point guard or the two position, especially when you're playing an opponent who 
has a lot of size and is not playing small ball. What's that like? Because I remember one game you having to guard Taco Fall. <laughs> it was, I, I mean, I could paint the picture. I, I just, you know, I'm someone that takes Please pride. Do. <laughs> I'm someone who takes pride on defense. And, you know, that's one of my calling cards for my career. And, you know, I think, you know, the coaches, my teammates all respect me for that because I lay, like whoever's lacing up against me, I'm always prepared to go against them. And I do my due diligence. I read scouting reports and I understand tendencies. So we, I basically got tricked into it. We had a film session uh, the morning of the game um, and was actually, we were playing Maine actually, uh, ironically. And we were in Maine and we went to the film session in the morning and coach kind of put up, you know, a little highlight of our defensive plays and what we've been doing the past few games and how well we've been defending. And he showed like a highlight of me and how I was knifing through handoffs and ball screens. And this is how you box out. And this is how you rotate, take charges. And this is how you stay in front of it. And this is how you ice a screen, all these little nuances. And I was thinking like, what did I do today? It's not my birthday. I was like, why am I being shown on TV right now for things that I've done the past few games? Like I'm just doing what I, what I am known to do, which is come up and show up and work. And it was all because he was setting me up. And he was basically, after that film, he was like, yep, so you're going to be guarding Taco Falls. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> everyone looked at me and started laughing. And I'm like, yo, Tevin, I mean, Taco Falls is almost eight feet and I'm basically six feet. I don't know how this is going to work. But in comparison to him, you know, bringing that highlighted video up and showing that, you know, if there's anybody who's capable of doing it here, it's you. Then he kind of put that battery in my back. And and one thing about me is, you know, you want to get me to do something, tell me I can't do it. So we ended up, we ended up starting the game with me guarding Taco Falls. And I'm not going to lie to you, jump ball or or whenever Taco, I don't, I don't remember if Taco started or not, but I just remember when Taco, the possession where he, like, I just remember him, like, are you, like, he's like, are you seriously guarding me? And he, like, looked over to coach and, like, to my other team, like, is this serious? Like, you're the one that's matching up with me? I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm I don't believe it either, but this is what's happening right now. And, it, you know, it ended up being a, a good strategy because I was able to use my strength and I was able to, to whenever Taco started running down the court, I would, I would start early, just, just, just giving him a little arm bar early, making him feel me, making him feel me. So that he felt that, that physicality, that pressure so that he, by the time he got to the block, it was already a low shot clock and he already had to be having a pushing wrestling match with me because I'm lower to the ground. I'm shorter. And, and you know what, the strategy actually works. So shout out to Jamma for that. But, those situations are very tough as players because you're just like, I'm not familiar with guarding a seven-footer or post-defense in that sense or playing a four for all that matter. But it's definitely something that was fun to experience and something that I could I could laugh on now. So positionless basketball is possible once you get around the weirdness of it. Exactly. Just the way that it looks like you're climbing on. What it looks like and its <laughs> value, then yeah, it's, it's possible, of course. Excellent, excellent. So, Juwan and Andrew, we could possibly see them guarding Taco Fall at some point. Yeah. He's with he's with the Cleveland team now, isn't he? Yes, yeah, he is. Yes, he is. I don't know when we see them, but next we see um, the one and nine College Park Skyhawks. Oof. So a rough start. That's a rough start, but they do have some very good players. They have. I you're familiar with Cat um, Barber. Yeah, Cat Barber is an extremely quick guard. Um, he's improved his shot a lot over the past couple of years, but he's someone who is downhill at a high level. And when I say downhill, I mean he attacks the paint 
Um, that's his calling card. Um, he gets a rebound. He gets an outlet. He is pushing the pace. And then ball screens, he's looking to attack and, and go to the basket, draw fouls, and kick it out. And he's a really tremendous finisher. And I think that's something that's common with a lot of guys who are small in terms of their stature. It's like the smaller you are, the more creative you have to be with your finishes because it's very difficult. You know, smaller guys aren't, you know, they're athletic for sure, but they're not going to be just jumping and dunking over every and everybody, especially centers. So um, his ability to finish through contact and finish in the paint is something that I've always admired about him since NC State. So, you know, we're going to have to definitely be able to corral him and have guys, you know, coming back on transition defense because, like I said, he's looking to attack the cup. And who would you who would you start on him if you were the coach? I mean, I, I like Noel. His defense is, like I said, that's someone who's defensive-minded and that's someone who's picking you up 94 feet. And with a guy who's very quick, you want to, like for me, someone who loves defense, like I continue to say, is I always like to throw different looks at players. So... I would give him a steady dosage, like the first quarter, I would probably pick him up first court. I mean, full court, full court pressing on full court, uh, the first quarter so that he feels the pressure and he has to work to get open. He has to work to set up the offense to even initiate it. And then the second quarter, I would kind of like relax the pressure a bit and probably pick him up at half court. And that would kind of mess with him because he would be like, all right, is he going to let me, you know, push the pace today? Or is he going to be on me all game? Is going to be physical. And if I can keep you guessing as an offensive player, then that means that you're unsure about your game and I'm the one that's dictating what you're going to be doing as a defender. So I would like to see that from Noel or, like I said, guys like Jawan Evans, who he doesn't like to switch. He likes to fight through ball screens. Um, you know, if David Johnson is there. It would be good to put somebody with size at the guard position on uh, uh, someone like Cat because, again, he's not the tallest or the biggest guard. So it would be hard for him to operate in the paint through size, especially if you have someone like David, who's a physical defender in itself already. So that's that's kind of the kind of few players that I would try and put him on uh, to to disrupt Cat's uh, production. And what is it like when you go into a series or even just a single game against a team that's something like one and nine? Do you kind of take your foot off the brake or do you go into it thinking like treating it the same way you would a team that's nine and one? Uh, naturally you take, you take the foot off the brake, but then that competitive instinct comes back right before the game where it's like, or if not before the game, during the game, where it's like, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all here in the NBA G league, we're all professional basketball players. Anybody can get hot anytime. Um, sometimes the, the numbers lie in terms of the records is not a direct reflection of the team's talent, but more so a result of some of the things we talked about, right? Which is uh, players coming in and out the rotation or coach not being there or injuries or just any other situational things that happen uh, within team settings that the public is not really privy to that kind of shows, you know, on their record. And so one and nine might not be a true reflection of their talent level and what they're capable of doing. Um, so as a, as, a, as a team playing someone who's has a losing record, especially with that caliber, you don't want to give them any life and you don't want to give them life by not respecting them. It's basketball. You have to respect all your opponents. Um, everybody's talented. Everybody's prepared. Everybody's professional. So naturally the human instinct is to kind of take the pedal, take your foot off the pedal and be like, you know, we're probably going to win this game. I could ease into it. But true competitors, once the, once the ball's tipped, you realize how imperative it is for you to always give your 100% effort because, again, you could leave the door open to a one and nine team and end up being embarrassed by a team that you're supposed to, quote unquote, beat. Yeah, I mean, I guess we, we saw that with um, with the Raptors and, and the Thunder last week, right? 
exactly. that should have been an easy win, and it was definitely not. And thing about basketball, and I think in a lot of sports too, is teams who are weaker, and again, not necessarily in talent wise, but teams who are weaker always tend to play to the level of the team they're playing against. So that saying of you always get the other team's best is is pretty much an, an example of that. So when you're playing against a team who's one in nine, or when the Raptors play the Thunder, who is looking for some type of life to continue to try and grow on the potential that they have, it's like they're going to take the opportunity to play, you know what, I'm playing against the best, I'm going to play my best. And that's why you have those upsets in college basketball or you have those situations where you have these teams who are generally not as good as the other team sticking around with them. And that's what we saw with the Raptors and the Thunder. When you have a team that's able to stick around with you at the end or a team that's able to come back from a deficit, then it makes the game you know, extremely difficult in the end and leaves it to chance. So like we always talk about, you kind of want to keep your foot on the pedal. The same thing happened with the Raptors in the Knicks uh, last game where they were up by 20 in the first half. And then the Knicks came back and they, they kept the game extremely, extremely close. And the Knicks almost won on a Julius Randle missed three-point attempt. So um, you, you go into these situations, you want to go in respecting your opponent. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that once you once you go in with the mindset of this is an easy win, you kind of you've already lost because you're not going to put your best foot forward. You're not going to try the same way you should have tried against Maine. Exactly. You're putting yourself at a disadvantage, a disadvantage every time if you think that way. You're basically shooting yourself in the foot. So you always want to you know enter a game with that mindset that whoever is lacing up their shoes or putting that jersey on across the floor. I'm going to give them my best and my 100% effort at all times. Definitely. I think that's good for today. Um, We will see tomorrow night, actually, and the night after if the 905 guard Pat Barber with Obadiah Noel or with David Johnson. We'll see if they come out guns blazing or if they kind of try and walk into a win. But once again, thank you all for listening. Uh, I'm Kelsey. You can find me on Twitter at Kelsey underscore lately. Most of my writing at Raptors Republic. Dwayne, where can we find you again? Instagram, do notice. And on Twitter at do take notice, where I do most of my uh, recaps of basketball games periodically on there as well. <laughs> very periodically. But we're <laughs> very periodically. That. <laughs> I'm not as good as Kelsey, but I'm going to get there one day. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening, and we will see you on the other side. This was saga feel like in the nighttime. Watch what she do when the light shine. Drunk.